Hello and welcome to the Challenge of Behaviour Change podcast. My name's Dr Emma Davis and I'm a Senior Lecturer in Psychology at Oxford Brookes University. And this podcast is for students taking the Psychological Interventions module. So each podcast is going to deal with important issues we need to think about when we're developing behaviour change interventions. And each of those podcasts will link with topics and issues discussed in the lectures. In each episode, I'm going to interview a guest who's got experience of developing or testing behaviour change interventions. And what I hope is by getting them to share their experiences in their own words, it will be a bit more engaging perhaps than listening to another lecture. So let's see how it goes and I'll look forward to hearing your feedback as the module progresses. And I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot about recording and presenting and all sorts of things. Um, So do bear in mind that this is just an experimental part of the module for me. So our first episode then, it links with the week four lecture, introducing the really important topic of health inequalities. And this is really important because it's possible that our interventions may reinforce or even increase health inequalities. So we're going to hear from someone who's got experience of developing an intervention where that may have been a particular issue. My name is Sarah Henley. I'm currently a demonstrator in the psychology department at Oxford Brookes and my main role there is teaching applied research methods to undergraduate students. Sarah, can you tell me what your research interests are? So my current research interests are about the benefits of feeling as if we belong in some sort of capacity in our communities. Um, I'm particularly interested in this sense of belonging in uh, exercise groups and other sorts of physical activities that we know have health and well-being benefits for us. And I'm really interested as well in what motivates people to set those groups up in the first place and to keep them going, because they're the people on whose our ability our ability to access those groups and those activities is predicated on them running them for us in the first place. Um, But my initial research interests when I was going through my undergraduate and my master's research and in my PhD as well were on mindfulness-based interventions and the health and wellbeing benefits of those programmes. Why do you think that changing behaviour is so difficult? Well, from my own experience of trying to change my behaviours, I would say that uh, motivation is something that's quite finite and that it's difficult to translate good intentions into behaviours and that there are all sorts of factors that can undermine my good intentions, including just wanting the thing that I want, feeling tired, feeling a bit idle, um, being with people who are uh, kind of condone my perhaps my unhealthy behaviours. And also for me, like I had experience last year, so I joined Weight Watchers last year, having f- tra- tried and failed to manage my weight myself for a long time. And I really bought into the programme and I thought that decided that it would work for me. So I adhered to it very closely and I found it also very motivational to have to go to weekly meetings where I showed up, was able to compare my progress 
to other people's, particularly when they weren't progressing, which says more about me than perhaps you should know. But also to have that face-to-face contact with people who were trying to make the same behaviour change as me. And interestingly, at lockdown, that lack of face-to-face contact for me really had a that had an impact again on my eating behaviour. So I'm now back on the plan. <laughs> so and I think changing behavior well, changing behaviour is difficult for everybody. Thank you. So in your PhD, you um, ran a pilot trial with pregnant women to see if mindfulness-based um, intervention with some other behaviour change techniques would change their health behaviours. Can you tell us about the study and what you found? So I was very ambitious, Emma. What I decided to do was target all health behaviours, which included um, in order to bring people's health behaviours into line with the UK guidance for health behaviours in pregnancy i.e. not to smoke at all, completely avoid alcohol, to maintain physical activity levels so that um, you're adhering to kind of normal UK guidance for health behaviours. This idea of um, putting your feet up during pregnancy is not actually what the guidance says at all. And also to uh, optimise diet, uh, to have your five a day fruits and vegetables, to not consume additional calories during the first six months of trimester uh, pregnancy, and then only to include them a little bit, increase them a little bit in the third trimester. So the first week of the intervention was actually an educational session where I spoke to the women who took part about what the guidance was and explained the rationale for them. And at that point, they set their own goals in terms of what their health behaviours would be. So specifically for alcohol, for smoking if they did smoke, um, for physical activity levels, and for a healthy and balanced diet that uh, didn't include overeating or too many um high density snacks or foods. They also at that point I explained about the mindfulness course and um, what the recommendations would be for home practice in that and they set their own intentions around their daily mindfulness practice. I also asked them to rate how confident they were in their ability to fulfil all of these goals and to discuss them in the class. So that, so they were verbally setting their intentions as well as just writing them in a book and perhaps never looking at them again. Uh, and then that was followed by uh, the intervention. So every week they I taught them about different aspects of mindfulness practice and about the different factors in their mental and physical health. And we talked as well about the barriers that they were encountering in terms of changing their health behaviours um, and made plans for how to... Um, so that they could meet their own intentions for being physically active and for healthy diets. Interestingly, the, the, topics, the topic of alcohol was never very rarely came up in their conversations about how they'd been doing during that time and none of them smoked anyway, so that became... I think we didn't really have to 
be concerned about. Okay. So every week they were doing some mindfulness practice and thinking about their health behaviours, and that's for eight weeks. Yeah. Um, okay. So can you tell us what you found then? What What did you? What were the results of your study? Well, it didn't work really. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so what we found was that the mindfulness levels and positive aspects of mental health did improve significantly. In fact, the mindfulness scores in improvement was highly significant, as was positive affect and well-being. However, none of the negative aspects of mental health improved at all. So negative affect, um, anxiety, stress and depression scores did not improve. So that was interesting. And we also found that none of the health behaviours improved. So they didn't deteriorate, but they didn't improve either. However, that was not particularly surprising for reasons of the sort of people that I was able to recruit into the intervention. Okay, so that's what I want to ask you a little bit more about. Um, because I remember you found it quite difficult to recruit women into your study in the first place and you mentioned that you ended up with quite a highly educated sample and as you just said they were all quite adherent to the guidelines um, so they were quite healthy already. Um, so why do you think it was that those were the people you recruited? I think that's a very complicated question. I think there are a number of factors involved. My initial intention was to try to recruit people who had... Um, higher levels of unhealthy behaviour in pregnancy, co-occurring um, health, health issues during pregnancy. And the existing research indicated that they would tend to be people from uh, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. So I initially focused my recruitment, which was initially was poster-based, out in the less affluent areas of Oxford, such as Rose Hill and Blackbird Lees and parts of Kidlington, where I, the evidence indicated there would be women who might benefit more from the intervention. So I put all these posters up and I waited for the flood of phone calls and emails um, after a week, I started going around looking at the posters to see if they were still there and to check that my telephone number was correct and my email was correct. Yeah, they were still there. Um, after a month, nobody had contacted me. So I then revised my recruitment strategy and went and put uh, the same posters on notice boards in more affluent parts of town, such as Summertown, um, and in central Oxford, I put them up on university notice boards at the University of Oxford and at Brooks. And I put uh, some midwives put some up for me as well in the JR, um, John Radcliffe Hospital maternity wing. And suddenly I had this flood of contacts from people who worked in the hospital, worked in the health services, worked at the university, most of whom, uh, all of whom actually were graduates, and several of whom 
had a PhD. They were more qualified than me. And I also then started advertising the study on Facebook groups for women who were pregnant and local activity groups for pregnant women. And I contacted some pregnancy yoga teachers as well who invited me to come to their classes and speak to the women in those rooms. And by the nature of uh, yoga, they were teaching it to more affluent women who were already engaged in promoting their own health, looking after their own health during pregnancy by going along to yoga classes and NCT classes and all that sort of thing. So all but one of the women that I was able to recruit into my study had degrees and eight of them had PhDs and this was out of a cohort of 32 women. And you might think that that's quite a typical representative sample of the Oxford population, <laughs> but it, it really isn't. So I did, the only person who I was able to recruit who had uh, just a secondary school education was somebody whose midwife persuaded her to come, who lived around the corner from me, and I was able to go around and speak with her and kind of explain what the study was about. So where do I think the barriers to all of that occurred? Well, I think that for one thing, people who have a university education are much more likely to want to come onto a university to take part in a research study. Um, and they understand the value of research. Also, the fact that it was a mindfulness-based intervention, which was back in 2012, 2013 now, is that at that time, mindfulness programmes were still fairly niche and were perhaps more widely known about in the more affluent sections of society and that perhaps the people I was trying to meet had never heard of this thing called mindfulness. I also wasn't able to provide any kind of childcare, so that excluded people who had uh, other children and also perhaps if they weren't in a relationship with somebody or had a family structure who could look after their kids uh what else oh yes i wasn't paying people to take part so even though if somebody wanted to go and take part in the mindfulness course at that time it would have cost them about 300 pounds to do so so in effect i was giving them something that was good value for money but i wasn't paying them to take part and i spoke to uh, somebody out at the family centre in Blackbird Lees at that time and she said you're not going to recruit people around here to come to the university she said the best thing you could do is run it here locally and pay them to come and provide childcare and she said in, even in that circumstance you might find that it's not possible to recruit people because what we have to do here is that we have to go to people's houses to deliver interventions for their kids, for example, because they don't want to come even to the family centre because life is quite chaotic for them. So I think I had this very idealised, naive perspective on how easy it would be to recruit into my genius intervention and that there would be no barriers for people to want to come. And I also think that I assumed that people would be motivated to change their health behaviours in pregnancy. And what I now understand is that 
even that can be really difficult for people but it's this idea you know that it's you can't if somebody's in a a family situation where say their partner smokes or their partner drinks heavily it tends to be more difficult for them to change those health behaviors people who aren't physically active prior to pregnancy are going to really struggle to become more active during pregnancy particularly if the people around them are saying put your feet up sit down love take you know let me get you a cup of cake <laughs> um and i think as well it was one of the other things that i noticed in my recruitment was that everybody who took part in the program was in a settled relationship they either lived with their partner or they were married to their partner so there was somebody else who could look after the children for those of them who already had children so that they could make that time to come to campus for two hours a week uh, but one of the things I had I did was I'd only intended to teach the program once and I ended up teaching it four times um, twice a week in two separate tranches so I could optimize people's opportunity to come along to the university to take part in the so I greatly underestimated what I was asking of people um, and the people who wanted to come they were fairly adherent to health behaviour guidance in the first place so I so what I realised retrospectively was that people who were drank heavily or smoked would probably know that that was something that's not a particularly wise thing to be doing in pregnancy irrespective of all the reasons why you can't change those behaviours. Um, and so they might feel embarrassed about coming to a, a, a group where other people had changed their health behaviours or didn't drink or didn't smoke. One of the things that was really noticeable was that I recruited some women whose body mass index at conception indicated that they were in the obese range. Um, and that and they all withdrew from the course at some point, either in the first couple of weeks or around the midpoint. The one who withdrew at the midpoint told me that the reason she was withdrawing is because the, I was giving information in the intervention about the importance of weight management and that she hadn't come here to the intervention to take part in this study to hear about those things when she already felt bad enough about her weight management. That's a really interesting point um, that you mentioned there, the, the aspects of um, behaviours being stigmatised. So just to pick up on that point, you mentioned about drinking alcohol in pregnancy and people perhaps not wanting to admit that. It's one of the topics that the students on the module might pick this year will be around drinking, maybe Hi. not in pregnancy, but it could be in other, other population groups. Um, what suggestions would you have for students who are thinking of picking that topic? What are the sort of things they need to consider um, to not put, be in a situation where people you know, might not want to sign up to be in an intervention because they felt embarrassed or worried? I think one of the important things to recognise is that different groups of people have different motivations, different reasons and opportunities and capabilities to drink alcohol people have different reasons for drinking alcohol and that different groups 
uh, people will have different reasons to want to cut down on their alcohol consumption. So I would suggest that it's really important not to think that it's a one-size-fits-all intervention. So, for example, if you were going to target women who were thinking about becoming pregnant, just really think about what's pertinent to them. What might their existing motivations be that you could already tap into? And what might be the things that would stop them from being able to change their behaviours? What would be important in terms of their environment and their relationships in that context? If it was, if you're thinking about women of your own age, undergraduate students, what are your reasons as an individual for consuming alcohol? And what are, what are your, what thoughts do you have about what might help you to reduce your alcohol consumption? And why would you want to do that? Whereas if you were targeting people of my age, people in their 50s, like what are my reasons for alcohol consumption? You know, how, do, how does it serve me? And how would it serve me to drink less? Because it may be that for somebody of my age, like the the long-term health consequences of alcohol consumption become more pertinent because I'm so old and, you know, reaching the end end of my shelf life, if you will. Whereas for somebody who's 18, thinking, oh, this is going to increase my risks of cancers in my 50s, it's too far away, I think. So that is something that I really think is important. And it's also important not to be pejorative about people's alcohol consumption because we drink for reasons and all the positive aspects of it, the social aspects of it, the immediate, you know, the the beneficial short-term relaxing aspects of it and socialization aspects of it are really powerful. And there's nothing like this is nothing that motivates us like fun, especially in this peculiar time in which we're living. So yeah, be kind and be specific and really think about who you're targeting and why and how to make that relevant to them. Brilliant, that's great. Thank you very much. I think that's really, really important advice to think that people are drinking for different reasons at different ages and maybe in different um, stratas of society as well, in different occupations. And certainly thinking about the lockdown situation and drinking would be quite an interesting one that some students I think will be focusing on. Okay, is there anything else that you'd like to say about behaviour change that you haven't already said that you think that, that could be useful to the students? I would say that prevention is much better than intervention. Instilling positive health behaviours and protective health behaviours in early life so that people don't develop these maladaptive coping behaviours that are around health behaviours in the first place, would be the ideal. However, it's also really important to recognise that from an evolutionary point of view, we have this deep programming to stack ourselves full of high-density foods and to, be, and, to be, and to rest as much as possible to prepare us for when we have to run away from that next saber-toothed tiger. Um, saber-toothed tigers don't really pop up very much, very often, but we're much more likely to suffer from chronic stresses than acute stresses. And there is a very invidious relationship between these chronic stresses and um, 
creating and sustaining maladaptive health behaviours and mental health behaviour patterns as well. And there's, there's strong relationships between our mental health and our physical health. Those two things should never be considered as different, really. In some ways, it's easy to look at the behaviour change wheel and think that we can diagnose health behaviours and change them almost in like magic. But it's much more complicated than that. And if it were easy... We'd all be healthy, wealthy and wise, wouldn't we? So that's the end of our first episode in the Challenge of Behaviour Change podcast series. So in this episode, we heard from Dr Sarah Henley about her experiences of developing and evaluating the Mind the Bump intervention, which was targeted at pregnant women and their health behaviours. Some of the key messages I think that we can take out of this particular interview are around recruitment, so the challenges of recruiting people who you think may most benefit from your intervention, and of course, the complexities of targeting multiple health behaviours. So I hope you found that interesting, and I hope you're looking forward to the next episode where we'll deal with some more issues around health inequalities and potentially some of the ways that we might be able to overcome them.